Welcome to Popcorn and Soda, starring Talal, a motion picture podcast, movies, pop culture, interviews, and reviews. Popcorn and Soda is brought to you by ByTalal.com. Visit at ByTalal and at Popcorn and Soda Podcast on Instagram. Download and stream on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on all your podcast listening platforms. Please enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I hope you're all having a wonderful day today. My name is Talal, and you are listening to the Popcorn and Soda Podcast, the show where we discuss all things movies, pop culture, and so much more. I want to thank each and every one of you for making me a small part of your day. On today's show, we are joined by a very special guest, a true musical maestro. He's the man behind some of the most iconic TV show themes of all time. Musician, composer, and the man with the best hair in the entire industry, Ron Wasserman. How are you? <laughs> hey, how are you guys doing? How are you? We're doing well, Ron. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And uh, we would truly appreciate you spending a bit of your day with us. How have the last six months been for you? Uh, we're living in this crazy time right now. Uh, how have you been holding up? It's, well, I, I worked alone since, well, really most of my life, but completely alone since 1992. So um, I'm kind of used to being isolated from the world, but this has definitely been worse, much worse, because uh, a lot of people, of course, are going through a lot of misery with it and whatnot, but um, not horrible. Hey, well, that's good to hear, man. And uh, hey, at least there's some good news. The LA Lakers won the chip. So yeah, for everyone living in Los Angeles, these are some good that came out of all of this. Yeah, I'm so glad they were able to fire up sports again. Not that I'm a huge sports person, but it was nice to have something that was new to watch. Oh, of course, definitely. So before we really dive into your professional career, I really want the audience to get to know Ron Wasserman. Where did your love of music originate? And what were some of your early childhood influences that guided you towards a career in music? Well, I started uh, playing. I mean, my mom was telling me I was trying to crawl out of the crib and get to the radio or the record player. And then at three, they set me in front of a small little piano and I just started playing it all the time. And uh, then we we bought this old beat up. I don't remember what the make was. I wish, wish I had it a giant black upright piano with busted keys and we fixed it the best we could, my dad did. And I started playing and taking a few lessons and started writing at five. So it's kind of just been in my DNA forever. And I um, continued with lessons, but was always asked to leave because they were trying to make me a classical player and I'd have them play it and I'd record it. I had a little cassette recorder and then I would just immediately ear it out and do my own version, but I didn't really want to read music. So um, I I literally have never passed a music course ever, all the way up through college. I was asked. The irony of that. (laughs) Which is not really a badge of honor, but, you know, it's just I have my my system. Right. Well, that's great. So what would you say were some of your early influences? Like, what did you hear to words? What caught your ear? Uh, Everything. My uh, 
everything I've listened to has been completely diverse. And my dad didn't like music, so he always had to listen to the news in the car. But occasionally I could get and flip it over to a music station. But I was able to get a few transistor radios from my uncle and have one headphone. It was just mono and just listen to everything. And there was classical and, of course, pop. And uh, the things I didn't listen to were country or opera. And, and still, still don't. But uh, so it was completely diverse. And then TV themes when I was growing up were a really big influence on me as well because they were so clever. So I'd take that little cassette recorder and record the themes to those songs. I'd make everybody be quiet and, and then I'd learn those things. Gotcha. Well, hey, uh, we're so glad that you didn't just stick to one thing. Your entire musical career, it's so diverse. There's so many different tunes. There's so many different genres that you've worked with. Uh, I want to really deep dive into some of your most iconic themes that you created. Sure. And being a kid of the 90s, by far, I believe that the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers theme is one of the all-time greatest TV show themes. Thanks. Having three other brothers, we all shared this fandom growing up in the 90s to the show. Like, school wasn't important. Lunch wasn't important. Power Rangers was important. <laughs> For any kids listening, don't take that literally. But this show was yeah, so bad. <laughs> Stay in school, kids. This show was so important and it's so influential in the pop culture medium. How did this all come about? What were your early conversations with Saban? And did you watch any of the Japanese version of the show? What were your inspirations behind creating this theme? Saban was very much a crank it out as fast as you can. We're throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks. So that night, they came in and they said, we have a show called Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, which later I had to check because I said Morphin or Morphine, which means I saw no artwork. I've come to figure that out. I knew nothing about it. They said, we want a one minute theme. And Haim Saban loves the word go because he had a lot of luck when he, when he and his partner wrote uh, the Inspector Gadget theme, Go Gadget Go. So I said, okay, that, that's a good idea. And I was actually working on a song uh, with a band I was with that my wife was a singer and I wanted to finish it that night. So frankly, I was a bit pissed that I had to write a theme for this song. I wanted to do something else. So I just got to it and pulled up some sounds and from we need it to it being done took two and a half hours and I threw on that what I thought was just a guide vocal if it went for a real singer, I'd never sung on anything before. I mean, I had maybe sung in a few guide vocals for other people, but I sang it and then um, forgot about it, literally forgot about it. Next day they called and they said, Fox loves your theme. And I said, great, um, who are we gonna get to sing it? And they said, no, it as is the rough mix, as it stands, we're not changing a thing. And I didn't think about it probably Maybe it was several weeks or a couple months until the first cut came in. So obviously it was a rock theme, which I was very happy about. And um, I just started the score. I may have written some cues before I even saw the first picture. But I don't think I there was no. I'm, I'm not even sure they had more than a theme and uh, maybe a, a thing called a sizzle reel with some of the Japanese footage 
maybe that's all they had just to try and sell the show initially. Now, the two things I remember the most about the show, like growing up, are one, the cast. You had David Joe's, Amy Joe Johnson, and then that music. Yeah. There's an art form to that song. There's, there's science behind this theme, Ron Wasserman. What do you start with first? Because it starts with that iconic little riff at the very start with the guitar solo that just sucks you that right in. That started with the guitar. It starts with the guitar, right? So yeah. Is that, uh, is that a trend that you do in most of your music where you start with a riff or the guitar and then you move towards the lyrics or is it vice versa or what is it? How does it work? It's all over the place. What usually happens with uh, themes and songs is I'll get a call and they'll, um, they'll say one of the funniest stories is a show I was working on five, six years ago. And they said, we're going to have um, CeeLo Green and Cedric the Entertainer are doing a big gospel thing. And we want it to be uplifting, whatnot. I said, it's in my head right now and hung up on them, on all the producers and just sat down and wrote the thing. So sometimes the entire song comes to my head, not, not with every lyric. And now I just have to work it out. So I'll quickly pull up a piano and just play the melody and the piano chords, even if I'm making a ton of mistakes. Then I'll go back and tweak that. Then I'll build the track around it. And then there's other times I'm completely stuck and I'll just sit there trying to come up with some hook and a melody if it if it requires a melody and come up with that and then build the track outward on either side from the main hook of the thing so it varies greatly okay now when you were writing this theme did you have any idea whatsoever that 30 years later people are still loving this theme if you go on youtube Literally, there are so many covers of this song that are hitting the millions. How do you feel about all that, that there's a whole generation of people that are discovering this song and oh, creating their own version? Yeah, It's great. The versions get better and better as people are able to record more at home. And it just seems to have been planted into a lot of people's heads. And as they grew up and became musicians, they decided to do their own version. It's incredibly flattering. And you know, I never dreamed. I mean, I never even thought about it after that night. I only even knew the show was big a few weeks after it came out because, um, you know, it, it, this is pre-internet still. American Online is just starting. And the only reason I knew is they did a thing out in Hollywood at um, Universal Studios at their amphitheater where the Power Rangers were showing up. And I lived about a mile away from that. And then I was going to drive down to it, but traffic was packed on the freeway. So I ended up walking over with my girlfriend and, and then sitting in the audience and then hearing a full amphitheater sing the song, but watching more of the actors and the excitement. It was amazing. They were rock stars. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pandemonium that a lot of people that weren't around in the 90s, just they, I don't think they really realized how huge the show was. We had a David Jost on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking a lot about that, the original Blue Ranger. And he spoke about how life changed overnight for so many of them. Overnight. Overnight. Um, now, transitioning a little bit more from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, you worked on so many different iterations of the show. What changes every time when you're creating a new theme for a brand new series with a whole new cast? Do you look at footage? Do you just kind of go by some director notes? What goes into that? To be honest with you, they'll come in and say, it's, 
it's now called Power Rangers in Space. We need a theme. <laughs> Easy as that, eh? Because it, 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 it's 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 not like um, it's not like such a shift in how the show is going to evolve or change to where I have to dig into the characters. It's basically going to be the same show with new actors, and now they're calling it Power Rangers in Space. I'm not discounting it. It just was a lot easier. So then the hook would come in like power rangers in space space i'm like okay now i've got to write the track around that so it's it's really that simple if i have the the name of the show the melody will come to me right away that again is that part from then writing before i get to that point and after that point now this whole mighty morphin power rangers phenomenon kind of started off i would say in the earlier point of your career correct yeah, it was really my first big break. I'd been in 80s bands and been very close to being signed late 80s and, um, you know, could go anywhere in Los Angeles because we were known locally. So every club and I would go at a certain point. One of the problems I had was hiring musicians for anything ever. Very flaky. So I decided I was going to go to clubs for a month at a time per instrument and just watch every drummer in town and every bass player, every guitar player. I had already played uh, keyboards. I don't play guitar, all that was done on keyboard. Um, so I started studying how everybody plays and locks together, So, which turned out to be incredibly beneficial with all these themes. Here you are, this emerging musician who loves music, who's just got his first big break. How is it working with a company like Saban, who's this like, billion dollar enterprise and here you are this true musician who just loves to jam out how how did it go how was the communication like it was intense because up to that point they had uh shuki levy his partner was scoring some of the stuff i had submitted themes for a lot of their direct-to-home video stuff but they thought it was too fast and too energetic for kids so uh, it would always get rejected. So I would be doing something at a tempo of 165 beats a minute, and they'd end up going with something that was more of a sweet little, almost a lullaby or whatever. So um, very simple, predictable, friendly little oboe with a little bear. You know, I'm trying to bring some energy to this, that stuff. So uh, once Power Ranger hits, then uh, Shuki, no, you know, he's like, sick to death of scoring he's like hands it over to me and now i'm doing everything so if they need a commercial or somebody some executive's kid is having a uh, a party now i have to make it uh, go go power rangers happy birthday alan or whatever so i'm banging all that out and the songs and the score other shows they're trying to push so it went from a pretty fair amount of hours to a constant 80 hours a week and that went on and on and it they were always really everybody there was nice everybody got along but between 92 and i think i left in the end of 95 i was just beyond exhausted i didn't even realize it i was just living in a haze so it was great but it was too much I bet, especially when the show blew up the way that it did. I, I think just the expectations and what was required of you to just pump out this music over and over again, just it definitely sounds like it may have burnt you out for a little bit there. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't as much a burnout as it, as 
it was, uh, um, I mean, my head, I could still write and write and write. And when I left there, I was working almost as hard two weeks later at another place. But it was just, I just kind of needed a shift. It was too much of the same, I think. Um, I just remember it was time to go. And Saban is a work for hire company, meaning they own all the rights. And I had now developed enough um, relationships to where I could leave. And, and this is the same thing that goes on with Hans Zimmer too. He has a long hallway and doors and they're all filled with composers and they may score Dunkirk, but he takes the credit for it and pretty much owns it. And that's kind of your rite of passage as a composer into the business. And those guys always leave. And then they go off and some of them have done incredibly well. So it, you just have to have the balls to jump and without a safety net and um, see what happens. I could have always come back and I was still working for him after I left. <laughs> right. Well, on the last topic of Power Rangers, Hasbro recently announced that they're going to be rebooting their movies and creating this cinematic universe tied in with the TV shows. Good. Now, there's rumors online that they're looking to implement the 90s or some sort of time travel stuff into the movie. Would you be interested in revisiting that theme? Oh. And if you did, would you want to innovate on it or kind of just like, if they ask you to just make I think it, it should be new. I mean, if they're going to kind of rebrand this, it can be certainly in the genre because nobody's really done that, but it should be new. It should be something completely new. I, I, when I started hearing uh, with uh, Disney, the, the slight changes on Go Go Power Rangers again and again, I was thinking, I know you're, you're kind of beating a dead horse here. So I think it should be something completely new. And now with the technology now, I mean, the things that could be added to it would just be, you know, like how about a metal orchestra? I mean, it's kind of been done, but not the way I hear it in my head, not yet. So something like that could work just as long as it makes people's adrenaline explode and they can hardly sit in their seat. Hey, I agree with that hundred uh, percent. Hasbro, if you're listening, uh, that's the way to go. Hey, Hasbro, come on. We were talking, call me already. <laughs> Ron Wasserman is waiting for your call. Uh, I want to shift gears to another iconic franchise that you worked on from live action to possibly one of the greatest animes of all time. That's Dragon Ball Z. Oh. How did that come about? And how did you get involved in that? That was after I left Saban and they called me and I was scoring stuff at home with, uh, I don't even remember it, when the first or early generations of Mac where it could only handle MIDI files. There was no audio. You couldn't record audio in a computer yet and a 19 inch tube television that weighed god knows 200 pounds or whatever they weighed you know they're that thick and oh i gotta stay in the screen they're that thick so they called and they said we have this show that we don't give a damn about the theme's already done i did not write that theme and they said just score it do whatever you want we don't care so i watched the first episode and i went all right, I'm going to do this giant building. I'm going to do these swells, these long legato swells that build instead of hitting everything. I would hit some stuff, but I'm going to really make this dramatic with a wall of sound behind it. 
And I did, I think the first two seasons of it, I can't remember how many episodes it was each. Back then it was always a lot. There might've been, do you happen to know how many there were? There's quite a few. Like that's a show, another show I grew up watching. Yeah. There's so many seasons. And, it, and as you mentioned back then, you're looking at seasons with like 20 plus episodes, you're looking at 30, 40 episodes. Yeah, it's it was always a high count. Yeah. Power was, Rangers was 52 a season. So anyway, so I was able to do that score and they would messenger over the VHS tape that I would score to. And I would send them back a digital audio tape with the audio that just locked to picture. And I never heard anything, which was good. And then when it ended, I think another company took it over in Texas. I remember trying to contact them and saying, I'd love to work on it, never heard back. But I never thought about it again. It wasn't until five, six years ago when I found out it had become like this big cult thing. Oh, of course. It's, I had it's no clue. absolutely massive. Not a clue. <laughs> That's so funny because there, there's two big franchises that you worked on. And again, I'm sure you absolutely loved working on those themes, but it's, they're so massive. And to a generation of kids, teens, and people rediscovering the show, even today, there's, they released a Dragon Ball Z movie in theaters like a year ago. Yeah. And, I, and I watched that movie in theaters with my brother. And it was a packed house. And it broke so many records overseas for like the box office. It's yeah. absolutely crazy how massive that show really is. Yeah, it's uh, when I started finding out, I never knew that that was big. And I knew Power Rangers was big. And I never knew X-Men was big. That was also 20, I think 20 years before anybody even contacted me about it and said, you know, this Disney's bringing it back or whatever. And this show has been a big deal. I mean, I, I know I sound like a moron, but it was just outside of my universe. I didn't have kids then. And then once I had a kid in 2004, he missed everything. I was always scoring the wrong age group for him. He was too young and I was doing teenage stuff. And then as he got a little bit older, I was doing preschool stuff. And then he got older and I was doing SpongeBob, which he would catch some of, but didn't see much of. And then was doing adult sitcoms when he was about 10 to nine to 14. So it's funny. He's always missed my career. Uh, well, uh, the, beauty, the beauty of YouTube and DVDs and Blu-rays, I am sure one day he's going to go back and just listen to his old man creating all this epic music to yeah. so many iconic franchises. It's Yeah, I think, yes, the day will come, he'll go back and dig in or he'll pull up. I have a 150 hard drives with stuff. He'll start <laughs> pulling stuff up one day and just go, uh, wow. He did a lot. I don't, I don't know if what he'll think of it, but he'll go, he did a lot. <laughs> That's that. <laughs> so on, the, on the last topic of Dragon Ball Z, and I know you touched up on this a little earlier. Part of the show, it's part podcast, part detective work, Ron. So the internet is filled with so many theories and rumors about one specific piece of music from that show. And, and I think you know what I'm going to ask you. Well, I don't think I do. Rock the dragon. <laughs> rock the dragon. That's a theme. I didn't write that and though. If you Google it, all I you mean, see, Ron Wasserman, Rock the Dragon. Where does this tie-in come from? I think because it was attached to Saban and I was doing everything at Saban. And even though I was never credited as composer on any of their shows, I think I got an engineer or producer credit. But you know, people are assuming if I scored it, I must have 
wrote the theme. And in my cuts of the show, the initial ones, that theme wasn't there. So there was probably a, a black screen that just said theme 60 seconds. I'm sure I asked about it and I don't think Saban wrote it. I don't know who wrote it. It's surely Saban didn't write it. Or maybe I'm wrong. Hey, the mystery. Someone out there knows. <laughs> Someone knows. Contact the show. Contact Ron Wasserman. Let's put an end to the rock the dragon theory. <laughs> well, there's all sorts of things. I, I remember too with Power Rangers, they said a guy named Buckethead had written it. Yeah, Buckethead is a great guitarist. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think he played on the first film soundtrack. That was the that was the extent of his involvement. But I never heard about him then. They put together a different band to do it with a couple guys I knew, and I think the singer from a band called Mr. Big. All right, very interesting there. Yeah, very weird <laughs> uh, choice. I have to ask. You mentioned SpongeBob, and again, these are franchises that are still so massive. What was your work on SpongeBob originally, so, and what was the concept when it was presented to you? I got called my a friend of mine who I'd met at Saban had been music editor on the show for. I don't know how many years already. It, the seasons are kind of weird and they come at different times. And maybe nine years ago or so, he called me, he said, I need some rock stuff and nobody else can do it. I need it for a wrestling match. So he sent me the scene and I scored that. And then he said, oh, I have another thing and I have another thing. Now I have a haunted toy store and I have this. So I got called for the specialty stuff that he was taking care of all the Hawaiian sounding stuff. And uh, so I would just bang stuff out, deliver it to him. And he'd say, I love it. Thank you. <laughs> it was that simple. Yeah, it was great. So is that something you're still working on SpongeBob or is that? No, um, no, it, he, once I started composing for it and another guy I know started a little bit, then uh, the music editor decided, hey, I'm going to take over the show and write everything because they were using a lot of library music, pre-existing stuff that they licensed. So he took a crack at scoring a whole bunch. And then they, they said, let's go back to the library stuff. And, um, you know, there was no hard feelings. It was just a situation where he said, it's my show. I should get rich over it and I'm going to take it over. And that's what he did. Sounds like money is the root of all material in, uh, in Hollywood. <laughs> the, the last iconic franchise that I want to touch up on briefly here is X-Men. And, and you had mentioned earlier that you'd worked on that. So overall, how does it feel to be involved with such a franchise? Oh, uh, great. And that I remember when the picture came in, a very close friend of mine was doing sound effects and he would do all the sound effects for X-Men. And I did not grow up watching sci-fi stuff or reading comic books. So I went in and said, give me the rundown on what this show's about. So he explained the characters and everything to me, but it was uh, a, a bit of a blur how everything was created. All I definitely remember is constant notes for a couple weeks, because that was written pr prior to Power Rangers. So at that time, everyone was still getting involved. It was very important to make a good impression on Fox. So, um, there was just a ton of notes and the main one was more hi-hats, always more hi-hats. So, and then you push up the hi-hats when I was mixing it and now you can't hear so much of the high end of the guitar. So let's crank the guitar. Well, now I can't hear the hi-hats. There's so many damn tracks on that thing. 
So I definitely remember it being an uncomfortable experience. And when it was done, I was, we're finally done. <laughs> it's hilarious. And it's, it's Sometimes funny. they drag on. Oh, I, I, I bet. And it's funny because this is another show that has this resurgence in modern day television, especially with it being on Disney Plus now. Yeah. Disney now owning the rights to the X-Men universe to have them in their Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, I think it's great. They do such a great job, and especially Kevin Feige at creating this cohesive sandbox where people are allowed to have their freedom, but as long as you're within the confines of what the larger and broader story is, it's you're, you're glad to do whatever. So right. they did this with Spider-Man, especially when they did Spider-Man Homecoming. They kind of brought in some of the 60s animated TV show theme in there. How would you feel if they kind of did the same thing with the X-Men animated TV show by implementing some of the mu uh, music in there? I think it'd be cool. I would, and if I was going to do it, I would, uh, I would take more of a Trent Reznor meets retro vibe and get some more distortion in there and, uh, and, and make every sound a little bit more clearly defined because it is just, it's pretty massive, thick, theme so when they would have it on television the sound effects had to go as storms flying by or whatever and the music had to be dipped for that so it's just because it was the music was too fat let's say so i think a more modern punchy version would be really cool same speed though speed if the speed's got to be up there it's got to move like that all right uh, marvel i hope you're listening marvel call me <laughs> <laughs> Let's, uh, I want to bring things back to a bit more of a full circle here. What has changed the most in the last 35 years in this entire medium when it comes to musical production and just music in general? What's changed the most in your opinion? Well, um, aside from the business side, which is getting uh, increasingly bad for young composers because everyone wants to just own their rights and pay them a low fee, even Netflix doing this now, which is, I think, uh, wrong, and they'll suffer for it. But, you know, some people will get through it. The other thing that's mainly changed, <coughs> excuse me, is the technology. Because even uh, four years ago, behind me, um, even four years ago, I had a large desk. And on the sides, I had stacks of rack gear, maybe $70,000, $80,000 worth of a compressor or all that all the outboard gear all sorts of stuff and the technology has exploded and i'm down to one imac pro and on the back i have five samsung uh two terabyte solid state digital drives solid state drives and so all my libraries are on that so the thing is now back in the power ranger state literally had five or six sampled snares to use for that. And I picked that one. Now I have 16 or 1700 of every snare that's been sampled and 40 pianos. And it's really detailed stuff and everything loads quickly. So the ability to crank stuff out and, and catch up with my brain is a lot better. On the downside, there's too much to pick from. Yeah. I totally get that. Now, in terms of the evolution of music and TV composing and movie composing, let's look forward to the next 10, 20 years. Do you think that 
physical instruments are still really going to be a thing or is it all just going to be digitalized where you can play with a guitar online? Well, guitar, guitar will survive because it's too, it's too hard to really fake it. I mean, you can make it nine, they're 90% of the way there, but it's never going to have the personality of that. A lot of the uh, television scores you hear now that sound like an orchestra are not an orchestra. So those people essentially are screwed. That stuff is getting so good. And when you think, um, like when John Williams went in, this is back, I don't know what the cost in now, that orchestra, it's a hundred thousand bucks a day for an 85 piece orchestra. Now it's probably 250,000 a day. So if Spielberg does an epic film, he may still want it if he does another Indiana Jones or whatever. But that's because John Williams is writing the parts. But everything else you're hearing is pretty much all done in front of a computer now. And so, yeah, I think live players or somebody that just plays the piccolo, I think they're in serious, serious peril. For anyone listening, that's a Dragon Ball Z reference, piccolo. Uh, you heard it first. <laughs> Very good. Walk right into that one, Ron Wasserman. I want to ask a couple more questions about movies. What is your favorite movie score? And if you can't pinpoint just one, what would you say are the top three best musical scores created for movies? Well, well I have to run the John Williams, but I'm not going to go to him for Star Wars. I thought... Uh, something that he did particularly well with Schindler's List because it's beautiful and emotional but never over the top and having the score that kind of a subject matter could only the the master is the only one that could do it I mean so uh, that's a brilliant score and uh, oh boy this is this is tough top three film scores let me think I love Danny Elfman's work, Nightmare, Nightmare Before Christmas, that style, Edward and Edward Scissorhands. So he has a very distinct kind of fun string vibe, which I, I really admire and it always works. So when the character's running in their weird costume and you have this fun music going, he, he's the fun composer, really fun stuff. And whoever scored Ice Age, I can't remember that. If you want to talk about CGI, he was one of Hans Zimmer's guys, I think. And I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but that's a great score. So there, we've kind of run across three different genres there. But a lot of the time, there's brilliant stuff. Um, I just finished watching Turn on Netflix, which is about the Revolutionary War. And that whoever did that score, it was brilliant. So, or uh, Borgia, about the Pope in the, I think, 14th, 15th century really brilliant scores these guys are doing on a modern side i and i'm not a i'm bringing up trent reznor again but his scores and who he partners up with are just i listen to it it's like it's the same piano phrase going on for five minutes but it just it never changes the foundation but he just gets all the rest really great yeah, the way he puts it all together, especially with his collaboration with Atticus Ross, uh, Trent Reznor is just... Yeah, that's what I've been listening to. Yeah, he just finds a way to just put things together. And he's been doing it at such a high level for the last 20, 30 years. And he's, he's doing now a, a movie with Disney, uh, Soul, that's coming out on Disney Plus soon. So it's just, it just shows you the range of this man. And 
from something deep and dark as Gone Girl or Watchmen. Now he's doing a Disney movie. It's just uh, it's who would have thought the guy screaming "I want to f you" like an animal would be scoring <laughs> Disney films twenty years later? <laughs> hey, evolve or perish, yeah, right? You gotta yeah. adapt to it. <laughs> now I've heard you mention this throughout. John Williams would is it fair to say that he is your all-time favorite composer, or who would you say kind of falls into that? Yeah, it's got it's got to be him because he he's also the last of the old school guys that actually sits down with, with staff paper and writes out the parts. I don't know if he even has anybody playing them in front of him now to try it out, but from what I understand, he just sits at the darn piano, comes up with the melody, and then writes out the parts for the whole orchestra. It's not, a lot of guys can do that, but they're using the computer. He's doing it out of his head. And he's done so many different styles that, I mean. Yeah, for, for sure. I don't, the guy is just from another planet. Oh, that, he's just, um, you can just, it's so easy to say that he's one of the all-time greats, uh, if not the greatest, just the versatility throughout the years, Star Wars, Superman, it's, yeah. those themes are going to live on long after, you know, we're long gone from here, this planet. Yeah, he's melodic, and that's the thing that most other film composers don't have, and especially Marvel, but Marvel intentionally doesn't want a theme that you remember. They just, it's a thing. Love it or hate it, it, it their films are massive, they're great. But John Williams, everything he touches, the first thing he does is he establishes that one melody and it just gets stuck in your head and they're all great melodies. So he knows what he's doing. I think, I think, I think he's gonna do well. Oh, oh uh, yeah, I think I have a good feeling about this John Williams. I hope I got a good feeling about him. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask about a couple more composers here. Hans Zimmer is, a lot of people consider him the modern day goat, like the modern day guy, the go-to guy, and especially his collaboration with Christopher Nolan. What do you feel about his overall style of composing? And what are some of your favorite tracks of his? Well, he's certainly great. But I just don't know, uh, and I'm not, not dissing him, but I don't know what he's actually done. Ooh, all right, let's dig deeper into this. I mean, I was there at his studios with my friend, and um, I heard when the first Pirates film came out, and my friend said, yeah, I wrote the theme for the, the ship or whatever. And I go, oh, that's, that's great. And I heard stuff through the wall, and I put my ear up, and Hans's studio's on the other side. And I remember distinctly listening and going, man, that's great. They could all synth stuff, all, all done. And this is 10, 12 years ago, maybe more. And I said, is he in there writing? He goes, no, he's in there reviewing the guy who wrote it. He said, giving him notes. And I went, oh. And that's when I learned that Hans's main job is to supervise, but the stuff he has scored is, is pretty great. But I, I can't remember which, which films those were. But definitely he's the guy to go to because you it's like going to a corporation. You have people that specialize and he'll hand it off to whoever. He's not hiding them, but I don't know what he actually writes. And a film takes, if you look at John Williams, he usually does one a year, sometimes two when he was younger. Hans is doing five, six, there isn't even enough time. It's, it's a tremendous amount of work. So, uh, but he picks great guys. 
All right. Interesting. Uh, some very interesting comments here by uh, Ron Wasserman. It's very, very common in this business. There was a guy named, I can't remember, uh, Snuffy Waldron or some huge television composer. Tons of stuff. Had about 10 or 15 ghostwriters uh, working for him. And again, those guys, that's what you do. You start by delivering coffee to people and talking. Then if you're lucky, you clean the studio. I luckily knew how to mix, so I got in by mixing. And then you, you pay your dues to get in, and then you go on with your life. So it sounds a lot like it's more so of a, it's, it's the Hans Zimmer brand or. It's the Hans Zimmer brand. Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, Disney or McDonald's where you kind of go in there and you're getting people who may not exactly be Hans Zimmer, but people maybe protégés, but he kind of gets the. I am certain that he sits down and goes through the movie with whoever he thinks would be good. Or if it's a couple guys, I'm sure he's very specific about what he wants. Or maybe he does a small bit and says, make it like this. And then I'm sure he's doing a ton of tweaks. Tweaks. I mean, the guy is not an idiot. He is a brilliant composer. That I do know. It's just a matter of he found a way to, to put out a high volume of super high quality work for the top films without having a stroke by sleeping one hour a night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh, and that's something you mentioned earlier in the interview when we were talking about Power Rangers and going back to themes and either recycling them or reinventing them. Question about John Williams, especially with Star Wars. Do you think that Disney is doing a disservice to the next generation of fans by continuing to... They evolve on John Williams' Star Wars theme a lot. They do. I'll give them that. But for the most part, it's still practically the same theme. Do you think it's good to push forward or sometimes going back to see what works already? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you're never going to convince the, the new guys running Disney to use the old. I mean, it's, it's, they want to put their stamp on it and try to modernize it. And from what I've heard, <coughs> the scores are really good, but I keep hearing the score during the movies. With John Williams, they're almost scored wall to wall, but you don't notice it. And that's how great he is. It's there doing, offering a little support, but you don't really notice it. And when he wasn't doing them, I noticed, uh, why is this, uh, this is almost distracting. It's too much. So that's something that he's better at. But eventually they'll, they'll come up with a new sound for, and they have to. And things are heading very much into, uh, synths now and exploring more sounds and tweaking things which i love um so maybe instead of trying to do a sound alike orchestra maybe they should have uh maybe they should go with a very modern score and give that a shot and just completely turn their backs on the old sound yeah no uh, that's fair and I, and I totally get your point of view on that and especially when you have a fandom like Star Wars. I, I feel that they may have tried to do that with The Last Jedi. I, I don't know if you had a chance to watch that movie or not, but yeah, a lot of fans were just tearing it apart because here you have a genius in Ryan Johnson who was trying to advance the Star Wars mythology and put his own stamp on the movie. And people just weren't having it. They ripped it apart. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, did, you, how did, did you personally like the way The Last Jedi went or the score of it? What are your thoughts? I 
I would, I like the way it went, but I'm not I, I, so hardcore. I mean, I've loved them all. There was the the uh, there was one I didn't care for, but the last few were amazing. The only thing that kept distracting me again was the score. Now and then, there was just um, it was great, but it wasn't perfect. And once you've established perfect, I don't know what you do after that. <laughs> There's only one way to really uh, go after you're at the top, right? So right. It, it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. But the Mandalorian, I thought that was brilliant. I was glued to it. And I haven't seen season two. I'm going to see it with my son next week. We're going to binge watch it. But it was the score, everything. Um, you could tell in the first episode and a half, into the halfway through the second episode, you could tell that the composers um, handed it to somebody else to do. And then either Disney or somebody came in and said, you're doing it because there's this shift. It goes from okay to exceptional right at that point. And it was great from that point out. So that score worked great. Oh, it's an amazing score. And Ludwig Gronson, he's the gentleman who scored that theme and he won an Oscar for Black Panther. And I don't know if you had a chance to watch Tenet right now or not. I know no. movie theaters right. and stuff. Yeah. His theme in that movie is just absolutely bonkers. Uh, I, I truly feel this guy's the next generation of, and he's gearing up to be an all-time great. He's killing it. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a handful of guys up and coming in films that are just, yeah, they're going to own everything soon, which is great. They deserve it. They're brilliant scores. And they're way more complicated sonically than the other guys, than the past. So it is evolving well. Oh, I agree. So what are you currently working on? Is there a project? Is there a pilot or a TV series that you're currently working through? Well, I had two, I had two NBC pilots that were just going to be shot uh, uh, and COVID shut them down. It was 10 days before the shooting day. And I don't know if they're coming back. I don't think so. And then a game, RPG game. I've been working with a guy that's been, he hires people, but it's not a huge company doing it. But he's one of these it's 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 called the next world and this is the first chapter will be the nothing it was called the nothing for quite a while and what he's doing literally in his bedroom is surpassing what these other companies are doing so i've done about seven seven eight hours of score so far some of that loops a lot but about seven hours and there'll be a bit more and that'll come out october next year and then there's more television stuff coming up as things gear up and some stuff for uh, Mattel next year as well. It's kind of worked into a break. I was, like I said, crazy busy right up till June. My last series I was on was called uh, The Thundermans for Nickelodeon. I think we did five seasons. And then I decided to lay back and spend some more time not working. I started, I'd always been a mountain biker. I started mountain biking more. And then September of 2018, I crashed and just destroyed my elbow, right elbow. Kind of the worst thing that can happen to somebody who plays. So they rebuilt it. I had two surgeries and a third surgery and did, went to physical therapy all the way up till this pandemic hit. So I put a lot of time into trying to heal from that. The good part is all the fingers work. The bad part is I lost part of the spread on the right hand. So this pinky will never go out to here, but it's not a huge deal, but it did wreck a little bit of classical playing. 
and uh, my arm will never be, never ever be straight because they had a kind of rebuild from here to here. It was just a freak fall. Fell and the bone crystallized and all the muscle and ligaments tore off. I'm glad you're doing a little better now and hopefully uh, we'll get you back somewhere close to 100% or whatever that may be. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about 90% and that's where it's going to be. All right, hey, well, the 90% is, you know, it's better. Than I wasn't even doing anything cool. <laughs> I was just at the top of a ridge and I stopped and looked down this very steep hill with lots of little broken rock. And I thought I shouldn't do this. And then I went, don't be a chicken. And I made it a good 10 feet and the front tire immediately sunk in and got caught. And I don't quite remember what happened after that. And then of course, no cell service and I'm alone and I'm on a new trail. So I had to just walk an hour and a half and found oh, help. That's, that's doesn't sound very uh, pleasing at all. Uh, well. No, but you know, I, the way I grew up and how I grew up, I just went, well, <laughs> I'm not going to die. I'll find help. It doesn't hurt. There you go. Perfect. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> As we are wrap up here with Ron Wasserman, it is now time for the final act. Mr. Wasserman, 60 seconds, 15 rapid fire questions about fandom, your likes, your dislikes. Are you up for the challenge? I am up. I'm trying to wake up. All right. The final act. 60 seconds, 15 questions. Can you beat the clock? Time starts now. Movies or TV shows? TV. Theater or watch at home? Theater. One sequel better than the original? One sequel is better. Best trilogy of all time? Oh, uh, uh, Star Wars. Should they reboot Back to the Future? No. Favorite Power Rangers series theme? MMPR. Favorite TV show? Uh, Borgia. Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad? Breaking Bad. Goku or Vegeta? Goku. Metallica or ACDC? Metallica. Van Halen or Guns N' Roses? Guns N' Roses. John Williams or Hans Zimmer? John Williams. Does pineapple belong on pizza? No. Describe music in one word. Emotion. Bam, with 1.5 seconds left, Ron Wasserman gets to the final act. Jeez. Bravo. <laughs> hey, you're great, man. You didn't really struggle at all. Was, a lot of the people that I go through with some of the questions, they get stumped at the one sequel better than the original or favorite movie or favorite TV show. So, hey, kudos to you, man. You, uh, Thank you very much. You're pretty honest with that. Ron, where can we find you online? R-O-N-W.com, R-O-N-W.com. Nice and easy, just straight to the point. Love it. Try to make it simple. Ron, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. Uh, and you know what? When the world opens up again, I'd love to get a chance to do this in person and you know, we can have a deeper dive into so much of your music. And thank you for just creating the music for a generation of kids, generation of teenagers, and people even today who are discovering your music. So huge thank you to you. Please stay safe. And just continue to keep doing what you're doing, man. I really feel the best is still yet to come for Ron Wasserman. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe for new episodes streaming weekly. Follow the show at Popcorn and Soda Podcast on Instagram to keep up with movie news and behind-the-scenes exclusives. We'll see you next time at the movie. Ahem.
on the show.